We'll open to Joshua chapter 10. An interesting chapter we have here because of an event specifically that we'll talk about. It starts in verse 10 and goes through verse 15. But before we get there, we'll, we'll start off in verse 1 because that comes before verse 10. And we'll go from there. Let's read verses 1 through 5. Now, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai to, and totally destroyed it doing to Ai and its kings as he had done to Jericho and its king, and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and were living near them. He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city. Like one of the royal cities, it was larger than Ai, and all its men were good fighters. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appeared to Hohem, he was just an okay king. He was kind of ho-hum. Uh, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jeremuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Deber, king of Eglon. Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jamuth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces, and they moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. We have historic records of this king, Adonai Zedek. We have records dating back to about 1900 BC, and also there are the letters uh, that are called the Amarna letters that were written around, or we have that date back to about the 14th century, that talk about this king Zedek and the, the land of Canaan and the kings that were there. And so we have historic documents that testify about these people, these individuals. It's interesting that Gibeon doesn't ever mention a king. These others have kings, they have people ruling over them, but Gibeon, there's no mention of that. And, and once again, we see that there is panic because Joshua has just made en route into the land and by Taking Gibeon, it was strategically centered to where this king was now fearful. It was kind of the hill countries, and if they got to Gibeon, if they could pass by Gibeon without a fight, then they were the next step. And so their hope was Gibeon was a strong city. They had good fighting men. They would put up a battle. They would weaken Joshua and Israel before they came to us, but now that Gibeon rolled over, so to speak, in their minds. Well, man, they're close to us. And so they went on the offensive, these kings. They had to put something up to stand in the way of Joshua and what he was doing. And you know, the enemy never sleeps. The work of God always encounters opposition. And it shouldn't surprise us when we make headway when God is working in our lives that there is all of a sudden opposition. The scriptures tell us that we're not to be ignorant with the enemy's devices and how he seeks out those areas that he can worm his way in and find opposition in our lives. And sure enough, as Gibeon makes treaty with Joshua and the nation of Israel, opposition. Well, if you're with them, we're going to come against you. And that happens in our lives so many times. When we yield ourselves to God, all of a sudden we find opposition. We find temptation. You know, it's amazing. I never realized the temptation that was there before I was a Christian. It was like, it wasn't even around. I never, you know, I used to have to pay a lot of money to, to buy the drugs and stuff that I used. And when I became a Christian, they, people were offering them to me. And it's like, wow, this never happened before. What's going on? You know, wow, this is great. All of a sudden, it, things are just more available. And so many situations like that, and you're wondering, what's going on? Well, you've just surrendered to God, to our Joshua, Jesus. And now the enemy is attacking. If you're on his side, then we are against you. And it shouldn't surprise us that that opposition takes place. 
And so in verse 6, we see the Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal. Remember, Gilgal is their base station on the other side of Jordan where they cross. Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us, because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua marched from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to stand, withstand you. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. Now, do you guys remember chapter 9? The Gibeonites tricked Joshua. He tricked the nation of Israel. They got flack for it because they sided up and said, okay, we're going to make a treaty with you, Gibeonites. You deceived us. You said you were for, from a far country. They, they bought the deception. You know, they had the moldy bread, the worn out clothes, the worn out wineskins. They said, yeah, it sounds legit. They didn't inquire of the Lord. They made an agreement. Three days after they made this treaty, they find out, hey, you guys are our neighbors. You tricked us. Why did you do this? And they made them vow that they would be servants in the temple or the tabernacle and then later on the, the temple. And, and I was thinking, you know, they didn't make an agreement with them that if someone else attacked you, we would fight for you. We never see that agreement. We just see, we won't attack you. And I could see myself very easily, when you hear, hey, come save us, you know, we're being attacked, you get what you deserve, see? You reap what you sow. I guess you're getting it now. That'll teach you for deceiving us. And my mind kind of thinks, well, this is you getting your just dessert. That's what you deserve. We don't have any obligation to go to you. It's 25 miles away. It's 4,000 feet in elevation from where they were. It's a trek. And it's not something that I think we need to be involved with. You made your bed, sleep in it. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm really wicked, but I could see myself thinking that way because I do tend to think that way sometimes. But they don't. We don't even see a hesitation from Joshua that he goes straightway there. In fact, they march all night. And that surprised me in, in the sense that Joshua seemed to know that this was what they were supposed to do. It reminded me of Micah 6.8. He has shown you what the Lord requires of you but to do what is just, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the just thing to do. Why? Because it's showing mercy to these people who are now our allies. And the heart of God we need to recognize is always leaning towards mercy. Always. Aren't you glad he's leaned towards mercy with you? but I'm not always so glad when he leans towards others. It's, it's my heart. God, I'm so thankful. I, I know how I need mercy, but you know what, God? They could use a little judgment. It would do them well. And God says, you need to do what's right. You need to love mercy. Love mercy. That's beautiful. And that's what we see Joshua doing. Romans 5.8, it says, God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were deceptive, when we were rebellious, when we were worse than the Gibeonites, we didn't even want a treaty with God. God had mercy on us. And he loved us, gave himself for us when we were in the middle of our sin. And so Joshua here represents our Joshua, our Jesus. 
he goes and he helps them. They cry out and he answers. And that's what our Jesus does. When you cry out for mercy, he answers. He answers with his love, with his mercy. And he doesn't fall short. They get there, and, and I love that he gets there with haste. I mean, he goes all night. This is a heck of a trek by foot and by, you know, horseback. I mean, and they take their fighting men. They go there, okay, they need help. We're gone. And again, 4,000 feet in elevation. And, and man, I just, driving 4,000 feet in elevation gets me tired. You know, I can't imagine walking. Ever play basketball at 4,000 feet? Half court, man, that's it. You know, we just, uh, I'm not running up and down this court, but these guys go. And they actually surprise them. They get there early, they surprise them, they took them by surprise. And in verse 10, it says, The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel, who defeated them in a great victory at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going up to Beth Haran and cut them down all the way to Ezkah and Makedah. As they fled before Israel on the road down to Beth Haran to Ezkah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them from the sky. And the more of them died from the hailstones than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. On that day, the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel. Joshua said to the Lord, In the presence of Israel, O sun, stand still over Gibeon, O moon, over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. As it is written in the book of Jasher, the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a man. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Okay, we got to talk about this. <laughs> There's a few things that we want to talk about. There's actually three things that take place, and we're going to spend a little bit of time on this because I found it interesting, and I think it's an important thing. Whenever you read something, it's, it's like the kid, you know, little Tommy came home from Sunday school and, you know, was driving back home with mom and dad and mom turns and said, Tommy, what'd you learn today in school? And he goes, oh, you know, the teacher, Sunday school teacher was talking about uh, when the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea and when the Egyptians were following them and they made it across the Red Sea. And she said, oh, really? Well, what, did, what did she tell you? Um, well... She told us that the Americans came with the amphibian craft that landed and were able to take the children of Israel across the land on amphibia craft. And then the helicopters, the tomahawks came and fought and battled off the Egyptians so that they couldn't defeat them. And the Abrams tank, you know, created so much dust that they wouldn't see them so they made it all across safely. And the mom said, really? So that's what your Sunday school teacher taught you? And he stops and he pauses and he says... No, but you wouldn't believe me if I told you what she said. <laughs> you know, we, we've got this idea, sometimes we read things and we think, oh my gosh, that's unbelievable. And we never inquire, what about that? And I think it's always important to inquire. It's always important to ask the questions, to search out answers, and to look into those things that might trouble you that might cause those questions. Remember, it was curiosity that led Moses to inquire about the burning bush. Whereas curiosity might kill the cat, it led Moses to God. And we need to recognize that that's an important part of who we are, is being inquisitive. And God doesn't ever expect you to shut your brain off just because you're following him. And so we're going to look at this, and there's three things that take place that I think are interesting. One is we see that the Lord threw, in verse 10, threw them into confusion before Israel, who defeated them in a great victory. So we see that the Lord threw them in confusion. We see that then the Lord 
hurled large hailstones, and the word hailstones can be just stones. It doesn't have to be ice. It can be just stones, but through large hailstones, in fact, more of them died from the stones than died from Israel. And third, the sun stopped, according to the scriptures here. Now, we're going to kind of take these backwards. We're going to go from backwards to... to we're going to talk about the sun stopping, we're going to talk about the hailstones, and we're going to talk about them being surprised. I mentioned it Sunday, you know, by saying, well, the sun can't stop, you know, the, the sun isn't moving, the earth is actually circling the sun. Well, the sun doesn't rise every morning either, but we say it's a sunrise, and it doesn't set every evening, it's a sunset, but that's just our language. And so we can't get too technical. This isn't supposed to be a scientific disclosure. No doubt, you know, your science teacher would say, oh, did you see the sunset? You know, and you wouldn't say, well, the sun doesn't set, the earth is rotating. You know, he'd say, duh. You know, of course, it's common. This is just saying, this is what we saw, this is what we observed. So it's not trying to be technically correct or scientifically accurate. It's saying what they perceive just as we say what we perceive. The sun, of course, didn't stand still because it's not moving, but it appeared to stand still in this place where they were at. There's a few things that are interesting about this. I read four different commentaries talking about this, and I found it interesting that three of them and these are conservative. I mean, one of them is probably the most foremost of Hebrew commentaries, Kyle and Dalich. They are Christian Jews um, who have a 10-volume set on the Old Testament. And them and a few others talked about the fact that there is this quote of the book of Jasher that we're going to talk about a little bit later. And we're saying basically kind of a poem. This is a po poetic reaccountment of what happened. And these commentaries make the statement that, you know, this is a poetic way of saying God gave them victory. This is a poetic way of saying it was as if the sun stood still and Joshua had victory over this thing. And, and you know, their arguments were, or their statements or their commentary, because that's what it is, they're commenting on what the scriptures say, we're sound. I mean, I read it and I think, well, that, that, that sounds pretty reasonable. And I could see someone going along with that and saying, yeah, I don't, I don't have a problem with that. But I, I did have a problem with that because that's not how it reads to me. It reads to me, basically, there is kind of the reencountment, but there's also the statement that the Lord listened to this man and that he said in front of Israel, son, stand still. And so I read another commentary that says, yeah, this is what it says, and God who created heavens and earth can make the sun appear to stand still if he wants to. And I have no problem with that either. If God did, in the beginning, create heavens and earth, God can make it appear like the sun stood still. God can raise a person from the dead. God can heal the leper, those who are lame, those who are blind. God can do miraculous things, and so... If God created it, he could do that. But I still am inquisitive. And so there were a few other things that I found curious about this. Because wouldn't you think that something like this would be talked about, not just by Joshua, but by everyone in the world? That day would kind of mark something. And it's interesting because that's exactly what we find. There are a few accounts that I'm going to just share some of these things with you. In the ancient Chinese writings, there's a legend of a long day. The Incas in Peru, the Aztecs of Mexico have a like record of this. And there is a Babylonian and Persian legend of a day that was miraculously extended. Another section of China contributes an account of the day that was miraculously prolonged in the reign of Emperor Yao. Herodotus recounts that the priests of Egypt showed him their temple records and that there he read a strange account of a day that was twice the natural length. And so here's all these records, different places, talking about there was this day 
We got up in the morning, we had lunch like regular, and we were getting ready to have dinner, but the sun didn't go down. And it was there for a whole long time. So much so that we thought we would write about it. In 1950, Emanuel Vilaskowski, he wrote a controversial book called Worlds in Collision. And in there, he brought up some other documents that he'd found, the Mexican annuals of the Cuahatalian Indians, the history of the empire of these, and Mexico written in the Nahua Indian in the 16th century. It is related that during a cosmic catastrophe that occurred in the remote past, that the night did not end for a long time. Okay? So I'll forget all the names. There's this Indian tribe that talked about a long time ago this night didn't end. Which makes sense because if somewhere it's really day for a long time, then somewhere else it's really night for a long time. <laughs> In layman's terms. <laughs> the Sagan, the Spanish savant who came to America a generation after Columbus, had gathered traditions of the Aborigines, wrote that at the time of one cosmic catastrophe, the sun rose only a little way over the horizon and remained there without moving. The moon also stood still. So here's another account of it being dark and not quite getting light. Would that freak you out or what? There's the sun, it's not getting lighter. It would make you wonder what's going on. And you see, we need to recognize that there was a time when astrology and the study of the planets and the stars was very important. Mythology was based on all these characters. The sun god. The same with even the Baal was the god of the heavens or the sun. And they would name gods after planets, Mars was the god of war. And so it was something that they would observe and they knew they knew more than we do. If you go outside and you, I asked you, do you guys know where Jupiter is? I don't know where it is, do you? Anyone here know where Jupiter is? But they would go out and they would mark these things and they would have an awareness of these things and there was a reason. Because it seems that those things had some kind of important play in their lives. And before we, we go into that a little bit further, there was an account on August 4th, 1972, where time actually moved slower than usual, where the rotation of the Earth slowed down because of a solar flare and solar flare activity that took place. Now, it wasn't distinguishable to us, but those who were measuring things said that the wind from the solar flare was like quadruple what it usually is and it had an effect on the Earth. They had power outages in Canada and the United States. So we know that the cosmos can affect those kinds of things. To what extent, we don't know. Now, one more account that I thought was interesting. In New Zealand, the sun god Maui, which is where we got the island name from, was said to have run away for a whole night and was out of orbit. Again, their sun god ran away for the night. <laughs> Just another account. What do you say when it's your god? How do you say, you know, our god is not there anymore? He ran away for the night. And so I thought that was kind of an interesting... Now, the hailstones. It's interesting that we have them in a confusion, hailstones and the sun standing still, all in one time. Because markedly, giant stones falling from the sky and wiping out more people than the army, that'd be pretty big. We saw that twice that there was cosmic catastrophe mentioned with the Indians as well as with the well, with both sets of Indians. And so it would seem that there was something that took place more than just the sun, that there was some kind of catastrophe. Well, what would cause hailstones to come falling down? And all this, I'm speculating. 
This is, it's just kind of fun speculation. One thing you need to be careful, there, there are things out there that say that astronomers from NASA have tried to, you know, go back and account for things and there's something missing and they can't account for it and the day of Joshua standing still is the day that it happened. That's urban legend. That's not true. NASA has no reports like that. And so we want to make sure that we are accurate, that we're not just making stuff up to suit ourselves. I hate it when that happens. You guys seen that video on Facebook about the USC professor and he didn't have the chalk that didn't break? Anyway, that's one of those things that's a lie. I, I hate it when Christians lie to try and make a point about the truth. No, don't do that. And so be careful that you don't reach out for things that aren't legitimate. And there are a lot of things that we just don't understand, but, but here is something that's interesting. Jonathan Swift wrote the book, Gulliver's Travels. You guys know that? You remember that book? In that book, which was written in 1726, he wrote about the moons of Mars. And he wrote about two moons. And he talked about their size and their orbit. No one knew about those moons until it was discovered in 1877. Over a hundred years later. And then... When they discovered these moons, they said, how come he wrote about these moons before they were discovered? We don't know. We think because he was very into ancient writings and liked to research things that he had read something that talked about these moons. Now, when you see these moons, and the names of these moons are Demius, which means dread, and Phobos, which means fear, they look like rocks. They don't look like spheres like our moons. They look kind of like meteors that are big, but they're circulating. One is circling the, the planet Mars at seven, I think every seven hours it circles. The other one every like 30 hours. And so they're in two different places. One circling fast, the other one circling slower. Jonathan Swift talked about that, but they didn't see them until 1877 after Galileo had invented the telescope and we were able to look out further. A theory is, and I say this is a theory, that at some point and at some time, Mars was closer and those moons were able to be observed and someone wrote them down. It might have been at a time when the meteor shower took place. It might have been a time where something, because they look like chunks of rock that got broken up. And so the theory is that Mars came for some reason, exceptionally close to the Earth at this point, there was a meteor shower that was catastrophic that caused all kinds of problems. Someone jotted down, I see two moons on Mars before they had telescopes, which means that they're pretty close, that it affected the rotation of the planet, which is another thing. The Hebrew, Egyptian, Mayan, and Babylonian calendar all had 360 days. Later on, we see Egyptian writings that talk about the extra four plus days that they knew were there, as if they were a mistake, as if something happened and messed up the calendar, throwing the Earth out of its root orbit. You know, circles 360 degrees, but we're not quite in a circle. As if something happened that caused the Earth to wobble, to change orbit, and gave us another 4.25 days a year. Why would all these calendars say 360 days? I don't even know how you'd get to 360 days, okay? This is all beyond me. <laughs> I mean, if they got to 360, I'd say, close enough, guy. You're elected as scientist, you know what I mean? But they all knew about this and they all agreed. How did that happen and when did it change? Again, we don't know, but it appears that something catastrophic happened that may have changed how the Earth is rotating, that may have affected Mars and its rotation with the planet Earth, that may have caused some of the things that we're reading about here. Now, it also says that the Lord threw them into confusion before Israel defeated them. In Psalm 144.6, it says, Send forth lightning and scatter the enemies. Shoot your arrows and rout them. 
if something cataclysmic was happening when you're going to battle, it would leave an impression to you, especially when rocks started falling just on you guys and not on them. It, it would cause turmoil. And, and so we see something happened that caused them to freak out and go into confusion. The hailstones came, the sun stopped. It all happens in this time. I, I think something spectacular happened. Now, okay, what if all this is true? What if all these things are accurate and it happened just like this? This theory, this speculation. What if that happened? Is it a coincidence that Joshua prayed at that time, Lord, stop the sun? Is it a coincidence that the hailstones fell on that side of the fence? When did God start that process for these things to happen at this time? You see, talk about a miracle. What if all this was true and God said 18,000 years before this, I think I'll send this rock going this way at this time because I'm going to have Joshua pray on this time at this day and this is all going to happen just when it's supposed to. Talk about miracles. See, my brain just goes, Poof, it just explodes at some point. I can't fathom it. It's... It's more than I can comprehend. But what's incredible is the conclusion that they come here in verse 14. There has never been a day like it before or since. A day when the Lord listened to a man. And then there's an exclamation. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. God listened to a man. His name was Joshua. His name means Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 21, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to this fig tree when he caused it to wither, but also you can say to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask in prayer. That we would believe that God would listen to a man. Now, in the context of Jesus' words, we understand that the will of God is very important in dealing with compassion for people. In other words, God listens to man when it's connected to the heart and will of God. And he says there, God was fighting for Israel. God was making a statement, no, I'm with you. And so as God is fighting for Israel, as God is making the statement, it says that he listened to a man. And Joshua is a man like you and I. Except for you ladies. But you know what I mean. He's not supernatural. He's not a superhero. doesn't have a cape. Didn't come from outer space. He was born like you and I. And he believed and trusted in God. And what would make you say in front of all of Israel, son, stop. And I love how it says that. He said that in the presence of Israel. You see... When I like to pray for miracles, I like to do it secretly. That way, if they don't happen, I'm not embarrassed. Because if I pray it in front of everyone, what if it doesn't happen, God? Then I'm going to look foolish. And you see, that's my double-mindedness. That's where I struggle with belief and with faith. And God wants to cure that in all of us. He wants to deliver us from this double-minded way of thinking and to truly believe God and to be so connected with God that we could understand when you can say, son, stop. Cancer, be healed. Blind man, see. Lame, walk. How do you know? You, you listen to God and God tells you, okay, this is what I'm doing. You can pray that now and I will do it. Oh my gosh. 
you know, I, I think heal the cold, that's an easy one, you know. Heal the cancer, that's harder. Restore sight to the blind, that's, that's even harder still. But stop the sun? Wow. It, it forces us to think about how God thinks about us. And when we align ourselves with him, what he is able to do. And when Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. Does it matter what the Supreme Court does? Oh no, look at they voted against us. Son, stop. Think about it. Think about it. Don't have to fear. Don't have to fear. God did something incredible. And they said, surely God was fighting for Israel. And it's a powerful point we need to recognize and understand. And now we're going to, verse 15, it says, Then Joshua returned with the Israel to the camp to Gilgal. And the, the rest of this chapter are the battles that take place. And as we're going to continue through the book of Joshua, there are a lot of battles that we're going to see, and some of them just talk about the different tribes and the different people and where they occupied, and, and we're going to really zip through some of these. But some of these things are important that we catch as well. And so let's go ahead and start reading verse 16. Now the five kings had fallen or had fled and hidden in the cave at Makeda. The, then when Joshua was told that the five kings had been found hiding in the cave of Makeda, he said, roll large rocks up on the mouth of the cave and post some men there to guard it. But don't stop, pursue your enemies, attack them from the rear. And don't let them reach their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. So Joshua and the Israelites destroyed them completely, almost to a man. But the few who were left reached their fortified cities. The whole army then returned safely to Joshua in the camp at Makeda, and, one, and no one uttered a word against the Israelites. I bet not. You know, that, that would be a day to remember, and that would leave an impression. Verse 22 says, Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me. So they brought the five kings out of the cave, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jamath, Lamashith, and Eglon. When they had brought those kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army command, who commanders, the army commanders who had come with him, come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. Joshua said to them, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, be strong and be courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. Now, there's a lot of interesting possibilities. These kings hide into a cave when the, the rocks are falling down. In Revelation, we see something like that, that men hid in caves while the rocks were falling down. We, we see these kings as they come out. Joshua brings the commanders and he tells them to put their necks their foot on their necks. We, we know the scriptures tells us that he will make our enemies a footstool at some point. But what really captured me was verse 25, when Joshua said to these men what God said to him, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, be strong and courageous. Because now we see Joshua is able to give to others what God had given to him. And when God gives us something, it is so that we could give it to others. And the faith that God had now given to Joshua, God, Joshua was using to give to these men. And the symbolism of put your foot on their neck means it's done. You own these people. God has given you this land. You are victorious. This is what's going to happen. It was a a visible impression meant to leave an imprint in their minds of what God had said and what had just happened. And he wanted them to see it, not just hear it. Put your foot on their neck. God has given you. 
You, get over here. Put your foot on his neck. You too. Think of these poor kings, man. They're freaking out right now. What was he doing? He's saying, God has said this. Don't be afraid. Be courageous. You see what's happened here? Here were the kings that came out against us. Do you remember? What, what did God just do? He rained fire, hailstones down on these guys. He stopped the sun. He gave us victory. Don't be afraid. And this is an important thing for us to take as well because we need to recognize God, God wants us to be victorious. If God is for us, who can be against us? What is God asking us to, to take? What land is, are we to occupy? Think of the city of Upland. God, give us Upland. Give us the city. They go, that's too many people, that's too many things. My gosh, let's just put our foot on the neck of the city and say, no, I'm not going to be afraid, I'm not going to be discouraged. I want God's victory over the hearts of these people. Be victorious. And don't be timid, don't shrink back and think, it's too big for us, we can't do that. God can stop the sun, he brought victory, he can bring it to us as well. There are five kings. Let's take five cities. Pick your cities, whatever ones you want. Verse 26, it says, Then Joshua struck and killed the kings and hung them on five trees, and they were left hanging on the trees until evening. At sunset, Joshua gave the order, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had been hiding. At the mouth of the cave, they placed large rocks, which are there to this day. Now, again, this is a lot of imagery because our Joshua, Jesus, was hung on a tree and also put in a cave. But the stone rolled away. Remember, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree, and that was what they were doing. They were showing that these people are cursed by God. They cannot stand against God. And then they threw him into the cave. Well, our King Jesus took the shame that we had, was hung on a tree, and was thrown into a cave. But... We know the rest of the story. At sunset, he did this in verse 28. That day Joshua took Makeda. He put the city and its kings to the sword and totally destroyed everyone in it. He left no survivors and he did to the king of Makeda as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all, the Israel, and all Israel with him moved from Makeda to Lebhan or Lebna and attacked it. The Lord also gave the city and its king into Israel's hand. The city and everyone in it, Joshua put to the sword. He left no survivors there. And he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua had all Israel with him move from Libna to Lachish. And this is all the southern cities. So they went into the hill and now they're going down to the south. They kind of divided the country and now they're conquering everything to the south. In verse um, 32, the Lord handed Lechish over to Israel and Joshua took it on the second day, the city and everyone in it. He put to the sword just as he had done to Libna. Meanwhile, Horam, king of Gezer, had come up to help Lechish, but Joshua de defeated him and his army until no survivors were left. See, there's a pattern here, right? Then Joshua and all, the, all Israel with him moved from Lachish to Eglon. Here's all the cities these kings came from. They took up position against it and attacked it. They captured it, and the same day they put it to the sword and totally destroyed everyone in it, just as they had done to Lachish. Then Je Joshua and all Israel with him went up to Eglon and to Hebron and attacked it. They took the city and put it to the sword together with its king, its villages, and everyone in it. They left no survivors. Just as at Eglon, they totally destroyed it and everyone in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned around and attacked Deber. They took the city, its king, and its villages and put them to the sword. Everyone in it, they totally destroyed. They left no survivors. They did to Deber and its kings as they had done to Libna and its kings and to Hebron. Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, and the mountain slopes, together with all the kings. He left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who, were, who breathed, 
just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Joshua subdued them from Kadesh Barnea to Gaza, and that Gaza is the Gaza Strip that we know today. And Kadesh Barnea should ring a bell. That's where they heard that this land was theirs originally, but because of disbelief, spent 40 years in the wilderness wandering. And so here comes that name again. This time, there's a different outcome. Gaza, from the whole region of Goshen to Gibeon, all these kings and their lands Joshua conquered in one campaign because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. That's an important part. Why did they do this? How did they, were they able to do this? Because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all the men to the camp at Gilgal. The battles that we have and we fight, we need to recognize and understand we can only fight them if the Lord strengthens us, if he goes before us and helps us. Whatever battles you are struggling with, whatever things that you are having, whether they are personal, whether they are physical, whether they are areas of temptation and weakness, where they are, are areas of fear and discouragement, you are not going to be victorious unless the Lord is with you. And for the Lord to be with you, there has to be a surrender of your life to His, to Him. There has to be a, a giving of yourself to Him. You know, it, it's, it's difficult to convey sometimes to someone, say, who's struggling at the area of alcohol. And, and they want deliverance. I, I want to be delivered from the Lord. And you say, okay, what you need to do is give of yourself to God. You need to surrender yourself. That means you need to spend time with Him. You need to recognize you are not going to have victory if you don't stay close to Him. And so you need to take the steps to stay close to Him. If you don't, you will not have victory. person has struggles, temptations with pornography. You need to stay close to Jesus. If you don't stay close to him, you are not going to have victory in this area of your life. It doesn't just happen. It happens when you abide in the Lord and he abides in you. And then his fruit starts being produced in your life. That brings victory. But I tell you, the moment you stop abiding, guess what? Bam, you fall and you recognize I am not strong at all, that it is really the Lord. But you see, if I'm not staying close to him, if I don't recognize that it's the God of Israel who's fighting for me and I have to stay in his camp on his side, if I'm not staying close to him, well, then it's easy to gossip. It's easy to lie. It's easy to do things that I shouldn't. Why? Because the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I, I'm not in the right conversation. I'm not in the right camp. And those things overtake my life. But when I am in the right camp, when I am staying close, when I recognize it's the God of Israel who is fighting, I just need to stay right next to him. Then we see the victory. Then we have lives that are victorious. Otherwise, you're not going to make it. You're not strong enough. Well, you might make it for a while. You might even put up a good front and, and develop some great habits. But to be victorious, you have to be in the camp of the God of Israel. And that's the only way it's going to happen. It's important that we recognize those things. You ever see a kid, a small child, who goes into a crowded room and he's afraid? <coughs> and they latch on to the, your leg. My kids, when they were small, they used to just, man, and I had two of them. They were like, you know, weights on my legs. And you start walking, you know, and, and they're just like right next to you. They don't let go. One time, Corrine and I went to some friends' houses, and there was a bunch of people there, and I was sitting down, and one of my boys, they, they were like two or three years old, maybe, I think, in between that age. And all of a sudden, you looked up, and you could see that he was on the other side of the room and between us and him were all these people. And he didn't know what to do, so he screamed at the top of his lungs. You would have thought someone chopped his fingers off or something. I mean, he just, ah! And what happened? I'm not with you! I need to be over there and I don't know how to get there! So this is what I know to do, scream! May we cry out to the Lord, 
so that we are next to him and may we hold on to him and not let go mm -hmm. until victory is ours. Because victory will not come any other way except abiding and staying close to the Lord. And we need to remember that. It, we need to own that. It needs to be in our minds that's the only way that we will be victorious is if we are close to him. Let's pray. Lord, a lot of stuff in this chapter, and it's, uh, gosh, it's more than we can comprehend or fathom. It's deeper than I, I could ever expound. It, there's more here, Lord, than my heart can understand. But it's here so that we will wrestle with it, so that we will once again get insight into who you are, how you work. That you are a God who is merciful with those who align themselves to you. That those who oppose you, God, will be brought to nothing. God, that you are so with those who are on your side that you will do things that are impossible. God, that we do not need to fear. We need to be courageous and recognize that our victory is in you and only in you. Lord, I pray that all these areas in our own lives that we're not victorious in, these areas of struggle, these areas of fear, these areas of worry, these areas of oppression where we can't seem to climb out. God, you can stop the sun. You can get us out of whatever pit we are in. But what we need to do is what Joshua did and what his generals did. We need to stop being afraid. We need to be courageous. We need to recognize that you are for us despite our circumstances. And we need to cling to you because there will never be victory unless we are clinging to you because you are the one who produces the victory. And so God, I pray you would deliver us all that we would be victorious, that we would recognize how much you are for us. And we would walk in that victory. And that we, would, like Joshua, would conquer these areas of in, in our lives, these areas of insecurity, these areas of fear, these areas of temptation and sin, these areas of struggle, that we would not let them stand between us and you that we would fight and fight and fight and recognize that you are the one who brings victory. Lord, bring victory here in each of our lives, I pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.